Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, your guide to the fundamentals of better deer hunting. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel for the stand, saddle, or blind. First Light, go farther, stay longer. And now, your host, Tony Peterson. Hey everybody, welcome to the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. Today's episode is kind of a continuation of last week's episode, but now we're going to cover just how to glass most efficiently no matter what type of environment you plan to scout or hunt. Glassing is an art, but art exists on a spectrum. Your kids' finger paintings might end up on a fridge, you know, in an overzealous display of their burgeoning abilities. But they aren't likely to fetch a couple hundred thousand Gs at a fancy New York auction house. Just like that, Glassing can be as simple as looking out your picture window with binos to check out the deer in the neighbor's field, or it can involve a real strategy for getting into an advantageous spot and trying to watch as much game-friendly terrain as possible. The latter is a better bet, mostly, and that's what I plan to talk about right freaking now. We're lucky to have a destination trailer on a little plot of land in northern Minnesota that allows us to live the lake cabin kind of lifestyle without the price tag of actually having a real cabin on a lake. It's pretty sweet. But one of the downsides is that I have all of my in-laws right there with me as well. I mean, and by that, like, I honestly mean at any given point, there might be 10 to 50 of them swarming around and living the vacation life too. Now, I'm actually pretty lucky with my in-laws, so I'm not complaining about them too much, but I'll just say this, that sometimes it can be a little overwhelming. 
Anyway, back in early May, while I was off trying to shoot a turkey somewhere, my wife brought the girls up to the lake. At that time, the water was really high, like flood stage high, and it was minutes out of ice out, which put our water temperatures at hypothermia level. It's the worst time of the year to be there, in my opinion, because the lake looks you know, somewhat fishable and the water is open. But the truth is, you can't even use the landing to get your boat in. And if you did, the only thing you'd catch is a cold. Or maybe you'd catch a few pale crappies in one of the wintering holes. But overall, it would mostly just be a lost cause. Now, it was during that kind of weather on that kind of weekend when my wife happened to talk to a few of her relatives. And apparently, one of them, who has a young toddler-aged child, had one of her young toddler-aged children playing along the edge of the lake. He was out of her sight and in a spot where if he fell in, you might not know it for a while. So really, not a great situation. And when my wife mentioned this to the mom, she was pretty dismissive of the whole thing, which fired my bride right up. Now, just like art, parenting exists on a spectrum. You have feral, free-range types like my wife's in-laws who have far more faith in the general survivability of their kids than most folks. Then you have the helicopter parents who breastfeed their kids until they are preteens and don't require them to move out of the house and grow up until they're in their 30s. My wife is pretty centered between those two extremes. And in defense of calling out her relative, she said, I think when you're around a cold lake with a three-year-old, you should have line of sight on them at all times. Now, I hate to admit it, but that's pretty reasonable. For the mom to get line of sight on her kid in that situation anyway, she would have had to leave the patio furniture, climb through a small ditch, and watch her kid from a less comfortable spot. She opted to stay put, and now her and my wife have to mean mug each other when they're together, and I have to pretend like I don't want to put rocks in my pockets and jump over her toddler into the lake so I don't have to hear about this kind of dumb shit anymore. Anyway, I'll get to my point. When we glass, we often take the easy way out. We don't think of our line of sight a whole lot. We don't think about what will spook. We just kind of do the easy thing. And we figure if we get eyes on something, that's good enough. There's a net positive. Now, there is an obvious difference between trying to glass up a mule deer to stalk versus trying to lay eyes on a couple of potential hit listers in the summer as they munch on some alfalfa or soybeans. The purpose of the glassing session might be different, but the strategy for glassing correctly probably shouldn't be kind of want to treat it like you're a sniper get in get the job done and get out all while not getting detected this requires planning and the idea that you shouldn't be glassing like most people take something that drives me a little nuts but also works in my favor which is glassing from a vehicle now listen there are some situations where this just makes sense if you hunt where there's a fair amount of traffic near where the animals are visible probably not going to disturb anything by using a window-mounted spotting scope. But this can go south in a hurry if the animals aren't real accustomed to close proximity vehicles. There are an awful lot of places where you can see deer from your truck, but the deer do not trust a vehicle that has stopped or slowed down on a nearby road, and they're going to bolt. This is true of Western game too, even though this seems like the primary method of a lot of Western hunters to scout. I also believe, through about 7,000 different hunting experiences in my life, that most of the bigger animals you might want to take a look at and eventually shoot aren't all that comfortable being visible from the road. Pressured critters tend to find comfort and seclusion. 
And that might be as simple as feeding one ridge beyond the road. It might be as simple as feeding in a low spot or a tucked away corner of a field. Whatever the case, unless your quarry has proven to you that they are just fine with close vehicle traffic, assume they aren't. And then make a plan to glass from a better spot. Let me give you an example of this that kind of changed my entire thinking around using optics in the field. When I first started hunting in western North Dakota, I picked an area of river bottom I thought might hold some whitetails. To prove that my spidey senses were solid, I also looked at Onyx until I found the highest point possible that looked like it would give me a good view of an awful lot of that river bottom. It was maybe a one-mile hike in with a pretty decent North Dakota-level climb to the glassing spot. So all in all, about as much effort as it takes to make oatmeal and coffee in elk camp on an average DIY hunt. When I first climbed up to the point I had marked, I realized the view was better than I expected. I could see most of like two miles of river bottom. I could see a private field that was teeming with critters, and I could see a big brushy flat that had mixed in sage and small patches of timber. It was probably the most fun I've ever had behind a spotter. There were whitetails everywhere, but there were also elk, mule deer, and antelope. It was also nearly impossible to get busted where I set up. In other words, it was the ideal glassing location. It let me watch deer cross the river and mark specific trees for stands, and it allowed me to see deer head back in the morning, all while staying undetected and gleaning so much actionable information. That one spot and the things I've learned from glassing there over multiple seasons has helped me fill, I don't know, probably like eight whitetail tags and at least one mule deer tag. It's also just one of my favorite places to be in the world. Now, that example involves a couple of things that make glassing easier. The terrain is ideal for hauling a spotter up to a point. Open country is like that. It was also, at least before EHD burned through and every single hunter in the country figured out that program, full of animals, which certainly helps your glassing efforts. But what do you do if your glassing situation isn't like that? Well, figure it out. Let's say, for example, you only want to watch whitetails, but you hunt an area that is a mix of big woods with a few random hayfields or other ag fields mixed in. Where are the openings where you can watch? It's the first step, just find them. If you can hunt one of the fields, the job of figuring out how to glass it involves just planning to get in and out and not getting winded or spotted. It's usually not that hard, but it might take a little trial and error. But what if you hunt a wooded patch that has no openings, but it maybe borders some fields? Well, tuck into the woods and glass the openings. The deer you're hunting, at least some of them, will come from your woods. And if they aren't visible on yours, but you can stay on the right side of the fence and watch them, then you need to plan for that. Again, though, this involves access and it involves playing the wind which might mean you can only glass in certain types of weather. The reason that you want to be so careful about your glassing, whether we're talking summertime whitetails or game time western critters, is because you actually want to observe what they do. This is not a game where the sole goal is to just lay eyes on some critter. That's great, but it doesn't mean that much. You want to lay eyes on critters, but then watch what they do. I talked about this last week and I believe it. Your goal isn't just to verify they exist, but to find them and learn what they like to do. I know I've said this a lot, but when a deer or elk or whatever shows you what they like to do, they're not lying. If they are acting naturally and they're not spooked, you're witnessing their truth. 
you're looking at so many things that could help you close the distance and get into their guard. So much value there. But it involves being smart and often more effort than we want to give. I've seen this a lot with people who go out west for the first time. Often, they just bring binoculars and that's it. They scan over several thousand acres of ground and declare after a few minutes that all the mule deer are better not a sight or they aren't there at all. A good glasser will be there for hours picking apart the cover. They'll divide the deeper shadows into quadrants and slowly pick them apart. They'll look at all the shadows for a bit of antler or a throat patch. They'll find something where most folks won't. And this is a skill that feeds itself. It's a self-perpetuating machine. Think of it this way. If you hunt pheasants with someone who is pretty good with dogs and happens to have some pretty good dogs, they'll kill more birds than the average non-dog owner. Even if that non-dog owner is a world-class wing shooter. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, this is because the dogs will kick up more birds for the owner, which is 100% true. But it's also a reality that someone who can easily and readily read dogs is going to know when the birds are close. There's more to it than seeing an excited bird dog and saying, old Hank is birdie, better get ready to take that safety off. They know the young dog will give false positives, but show off a lot while doing it. Just as they know the old dog who isn't flashy anymore will only tell the truth with its body language. Even in cover where the dogs are barely visible, a glimpse of them tells you so much, just as the sound of a tail whacking the cattails can tell you the right person all he needs to know about the prospect of a rooster getting up. That lead time, that awareness, even if it's only a second, is a huge advantage. That person is just at a different level. Just like someone who is patient at glassing will almost always be more successful than someone who views it as a way to pass time and not a way to find an animal worth hunting. The disciplined person learns to look for pieces of game, pieces of a game animal anyway, and not a whole critter. And they learn to go back and forth between binoculars and spotting scope so they don't miss anything and they learn as much as possible. This is because even when they have a good buck or bull to watch, they know there's going to be other actors on the stage somewhere. A velvet mule deer browsing in the sage should demand some of your attention. But if you want to stalk him, you might want to do a real thorough sweep with your binos to see who else is around, who might blow up the whole thing if you try to stalk. Or maybe you're watching a bachelor group of whitetails and they are all feeding contently in the beans. So you ignore the lone buck, who is a scrapper anyway, and you miss the time he drops into a draw and comes back out with wet feet. Sure, he's not the buck you want to kill. You're watching the other deer. They're bigger. But did he just give you something actionable to think about with the rest of the deer? Those other bucks, the bigger ones, they're going to get thirsty too. Do you even know where he was? Do you know where he went? Do you know why there was water in there? There's so many actionable things out there if you're watching and paying attention. And the thing about it is, the more you do this, the better you get. It's just like hunting from a tree saddle or setting up ground blinds for turkeys, calling ducks. Hell, it's just like every outdoor skill. But this one is real important and it doesn't get that much love anymore. We kind of take it for granted that everyone knows how to use optics to look at stuff, but it's just not true. I mean, maybe the easiest way to frame this up is to think about someone who is not very comfortable with a spotting scope. Now ask that person to find a small object that is 700 yards away by pointing out terrain features. This happens in hunting a lot. And it usually goes something like this. 
Found one. Where? Look at that dip on the second ridge. See it? Yep. Now follow the left side down until you see that light-colored bush or tree. From there, he's like 100 yards downhill by that cedar that looks like it's half burnt, but it's actually just brown or something. You got him? Uh, nope. Okay. Do you see the cedar? Yep. Follow that little blaze of sunlight straight up into the right. He's off behind that slight rise, so you can only see the tips of his antlers now. Um, I still don't have him. Holy frog smackers, man. Just look at the freaking spot of sunlight and then, you know, and it just keeps going. That kind of conversation, whispered, screaming, fighting conversation happens between hunting partners a lot when there's a lot of glassing. It always devolves into this frustrating whisper fight that might make the casual passerby, if there was one out there, think they are listening to a marital spat. Glassing isn't actually as easy as it looks. And what's worse is that it's a skill you have to work to develop. The best way to do this is to find reasons to glass and then to do it around an actual strategy where you solve for, ahead of time, at least a few of the problems you're likely to run into. This results in better, more productive glassing sessions, of course, but it also helps you in the grand scheme of things because you know what? You're problem solving in an effort to be more efficient in the field. The more you work that muscle, my friends, the stronger it gets. You can do this if you're outfitted with the best optics money can buy. And of course, all the sweet accessories that go along with that. Or you're running a bargain basement pair of hand-me-down binoculars that probably saw a little combat time in the last great war. While the right optics are important for a lot of what we do, they aren't totally necessary. What is, is using whatever optics you can get your hands on, and hopefully they're decent, to figure out as much as possible from a good, safe distance while not spooking anything and just vacuuming up as much intel as the critters will throw your way. Think about that. Think about the last two weeks I've talked about glassing and how you could increase your optics game and figure out how to scout better. Think about that as we get deeper this summer and the whitetail scouting starts to ramp up and the itch to head west this season hits a fever pitch. Think about tuning in next week because I'm going to talk about how much I love antelope and why I think every single person should hunt them at least once just to see what it's like. And I urge you to listen to it even if you have no interest in antelope hunting because I'm going to make my best you know, country lawyer case for why you should at least think about antelope as a potential reason to point your truck west. That's it for this week, my friends. I'm Tony Peterson. This has been the Wired to Hunt Foundations podcast, which is brought to you by First Light. As always, thank you so much for listening and for all your support. I really appreciate it. Mark really appreciates it. Everybody at Mediator really appreciates your support. And if you want a little bit more whitetail content or hunting content in general, you can head on over to themediator.com and you can find all all kinds of video series you can find all kinds of articles by myself and mark and alex gilstrom and bo martonic and a whole bunch of really good writers hey we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries now if you're like me enjoying the great outdoors you need gear that is as reliable as it gets that's why i power my adventures with interstate batteries I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power 
today. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now. And if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some meat eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.